Hi, welcome. Uh, I'm Perna Sen. I'll be chairing tonight's event with Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, about whom I'll say a little bit to introduce her, and then I will hand over to Professor Crenshaw for our talk this evening. Kimberly Crenshaw is currently Professor of Law at UCLA in Columbia. She's written in the areas of civil rights, black feminist legal history, theory, sorry, and race, racism, and the law. She has lectured nationally and internationally on race matters, addressing audiences throughout Europe, Africa, and South America. She has facilitated workshops for civil rights activists in Brazil and in India, and for constitutional court judges in South Africa. And her work on race and gender was influential in the drafting of the Equality Clause in the South African Constitution. Uh, I'm not going to read her, the rest of her bio. It's on the website. But what I do want to say is how absolutely delighted I am that we have Kimberly Crenshaw here tonight. Um, she's going to talk for about 45 minutes, and then we'll have the same amount of time for questions. Uh, I, I think it's important for many of us to have this conversation tonight, because what you gave us, Kimberly, was a different language to talk about the ways in which we'd experienced a variety of forms of discrimination, oppression, and a way to move away from very simple, numeral, additive, mathematical ways of talking about what we now call intersectionality. So um, I love your title. Kimberly gave me three titles to choose from for tonight, <laughs> and I love this one. So we, we now are going to hear from Kimberly on Justice Rising, Moving Intersectionally in the Age of Post-Everything. And if you're going to tweet... The hashtag is LSE Crenshaw. Please feel free to tweet, but do turn off your phones. Kimberly. <laughs> Silent. Silent phones. Thank you, Kimberly. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> well, good evening, everyone. I really need to make it a habit to come back to London more often. This is truly amazing. So I understand that there have been some debates about intersectionality here. Uh, everywhere I've been over the last couple of days, there's been a very, um, very interesting conversation. Um, and I'm, I'm very, very glad to be able to take a, a part of it. Um, so I have some thoughts tonight that, that I want to share. I want to start with just acknowledging um, that much has changed around the discourse in, around intersectionality um, since it was first introduced in the mid-1980s. Um, obviously, it's been taken up in many different disciplines and across many contexts around the world. And this is some of what's been so interesting about being here. Um, and in its take-up, in its travel, it's generated a lot of interesting, and I use that um, uh, ironically, um, interpretations. So um, some have sought to explain uh, why it has had such uptake, why it's traveled so uh, wide and, 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 and uh, broad. Um, others have asked of it to uh, provide its own user's guide and have found it wanting because of its failure uh, to speak to issue X or to uh, issue Y. Um, others have picked 
up the question of uh, its lack of methodology, its inability to tell users how to use it when they take it up in various disciplines and contexts. Now, some have managed to use uh, intersectionality um, in ways that have been quite profitable for the context that they're in. Um, Some have been able to adapt intersectionality to address a whole range of issues uh, that were not addressed when intersectionality was initially articulated. And others have indicted intersectionality for actually producing specific kinds of epistemic and positive harms. Now, suffice it to say that there has been, I think, a virtual cottage industry developing around intersectionality. What it is, what it isn't, is it new, is it old, is it productive, counterproductive, is it grand theory or mere description, is it too academic or too descriptive? All of these debates are rich, to say the least. Now, I have to say that I'm often tempted in many ways to say something in these debates, particularly the ones in which one finds one's own work being cited against oneself. (laughs) But that would be an unending project. There is, however, one particular set of arguments that I think bears some response, or at least some interrogation. And I want to name that broadly tonight as the post-intersectional move. Now, there are various articulations of post-intersectionality, and I don't mean to address all of them, but I have sometimes wondered whether the project is really a product of those who rather enjoy the intersectional frame without the black female bodies that were initially attached to it. So my musing, some might call it my stewing, uh, takes up the question about how to engage the post-intersectional move and to query whether its traveling partner is in fact post-racialism, further delineated into post-blackness or black fatigue, and then post-black womanness. Now, it seemed that within each academic and activist sphere that pertains to race, to gender, and to intersectionality, efforts to advance social justice projects have been complicated, compromised, and sometimes challenged by discourses that travel under the frame post. And in each of these arenas, I found myself wondering exactly what the project of the post is. So within each discussion, the operation of the post has functioned to distinguish between some legitimate defensible stance towards a project and, on the other hand, some problematic conceptualization demarcated as having been bypassed or transcended or set aside by either time, events, reinvention, or correction. Yet exactly what, for example, is the post, for example, in post-racialism? What it is, is actually never fully defined. So, is post-racialism, for example, an actual set of conditions that are in some way the opposite of what came before it, namely racialism? Or is it a set of conventions about how not to talk about race? Or is there a sense that racial hierarchy is relatively permanent and therefore not news anymore, as in we are over it even though it's not over. 
So if post-intersectionality then is measured by these particular kinds of questions, then are we saying that those who are advocating for post-intersectionality are saying that there is a certain set of conditions that are somehow the opposite of intersectional disempowerment? So are we in a post-period that can be marked by some material and political reality that we can point to? Or are they saying that there's nothing new about intersectional disempowerment, so why should we talk about it any longer? Are they saying it makes us uncomfortable and we are over it, even though for some the intersectional moment never really came? So figuring out exactly what we're talking about when we say post-racial and post-intersectional I think is really important work. I also think that we might come to some answers about what the post is doing when we're thinking about post-racialism before we come to some answers about post-intersectionality. And let me tell you the reason I think that. Recall that the fortunes of post-racism, post-racialism, rose along with the unprecedented campaign of Barack Obama. I think, therefore, it's possible, perhaps even likely, when his presidency recedes into history, so too will this particular ideological configuration. So some new understanding of what post-racialism was will probably emerge, one that will illuminate the disciplinary work that was done by post-racialism during the presidency of the first African-American president. Now, presumably, this project will elevate post-racialism not as a moment of having moved beyond race, but as a particular instantiation of racial power itself. By this, post-racialism might come to be seen as merely a subspecies of racial power rather than a negation of racial power itself. So now the question I want to raise then is whether post-intersectionality might similarly be seen as an ideological embodiment of precisely the politics that intersectionality had been mobilized to interrogate. Now, this full argument is beyond the scope of what I can do tonight, but I do want to make a nod in that direction, first by returning to the scene of articulation namely black women's mobilizations in the U.S., to query whether there's any post-intersectional moment to be captured now. Now, this is not to suggest that African-American women in the U.S. is the exclusive site of intersectionality, or that race and gender are the only factors ever to be considered within an intersectional frame, a surprising interpretation that I've sometimes seen erroneously attributed to me. Uh, But instead, I focus on this moment as a particularly vexed contradiction. Although intersectionality was coined to counter the disembodiment of black women from law, the challenge today is to resist the disembodiment of black women from intersectionality itself. And even while this produces a new challenge, at the same time, the old challenges that prompted the need to fashion new concepts have changed relatively little. Black women and girls still have to fight battles at home, as in within anti-racism, as in within feminism, 
and also battles at, abroad, as in in overall politics of neoliberalism. So in order to return to the scene, let me first start by providing a brief primer on the emergence of intersectionality as a legal concept grounded in black feminism. So as Audre Lorde noted, um, in this country where racial differences creates a constant, if unbroken distortion of vision, black women have on the one hand always been highly visible and on the other hand have been rendered invisible through the depersonalization of racism and I would add of gender. As black feminist philosopher Christy Dotson notes, black women and girls are invisible in plain sight living clearly discernible consequences of race and gender burdens, while these struggles are simultaneously marginalized and sometimes normalized within our various communities. Now, this phenomenon is not new, as black feminists have acknowledged over the course of history. From the plantation to the prisons, spaces of disempowerment have been populated by black women's bodies, but the imaginaries of emancipation have rarely specifically engaged them. Now, as a young black feminist in the late 80s, my own efforts to articulate a black feminist imaginary was premised on the paradox of black women's highly visible invisibility in anti-discrimination law. So feminists such as Anna Julia Cooper, Ida B. Wells, in my lifetime, Angela Davis, Bell Hooks, Paula Giddings, and Beverly Guy Sheftal had repeatedly given voice to the complexity surrounding the visibility of black women's bodies. My interest was in interrogating the how and the why of their erasure within the very laws that were designed to address both race and gender discrimination. Now, the early pieces that I wrote, demarginalizing the intersection of race and sex and mapping the margins, et cetera, et cetera, were essentially transcriptions of political interventions on stages that were set within the left legal academy where critical legal studies had defined the progressive terrain in the 80s. There, the political and discursive practices were characterized by a deep critique of the way that law reified social hierarchy, a project that in turn gave rise to how patriarchy was insulated by law, which in turn gave rise to how racial dominance was rationalized by law, and ultimately gave rise to how racial domination and gender domination was also rationalized and naturalized by law. Moreover, we began to interrogate how power relations within gendered and racialized communities were also naturalized and taken for granted even within feminist politics and anti-racist politics. So intersectionality was a conceptual frame that was built on a common, readily accessible metaphor. It was designed to articulate a black feminist critique of the various instances of subordination and erasure that black female plaintiffs were facing in efforts to bring law to their defense. Subsequent iterations took up the question in other arenas, deploying intersectionality to investigate a wide range of dynamics. The objectives were quite explicitly social justice oriented. 
it, they were not particularly invested in creating a grand social theory of power. They were not particularly invested in questions of subjectivity, history, or the like. It was a discursive tool to draw attention to the challenge of power within social justice discourses. So let me be more specific about some of the uh, earlier investigations um, that intersectionality was uh, designed uh, to address. So the scene of interrogation was de Graff and Reed versus General Motors. Um, and in de Graff and Reed uh, versus General Motors, um, would-be uh, employees of General Motors, several black women, um, were suing the company that had for having segregated its workforce by race and by gender. Now, General Motors was not alone in this regard in the mid-1970s. Many manufacturing concerns reflected some of the same problems. So jobs were distinguished by race. Blacks did one set of jobs and whites did another. Jobs were also segregated by gender. Women were welcome to apply for some jobs and not for others. Now, this was a problem in and of itself, of course, a race and gender segregated workforce. But for black women, the consequence of this gender and race segregation was compounded. You see, the black jobs were men's jobs, and the women's jobs were white jobs. Thus, while a black applicant might be hired to work on the floor of the factory if he were male, a black female would not be considered for such jobs. Similarly, a woman might be hired as a secretary if she were white, but wouldn't have a chance at such a job if she were black. To put a point on it, neither the black jobs nor the women's jobs were appropriate for black women since they were neither male nor white. Now, despite the fact that these black women faced a form of intersectional discrimination as women who were not white and blacks who were not male, the courts ruled against them because in the court's view, they had failed to de demonstrate race discrimination because General Motors did hire blacks, albeit blacks who were men, and they were not able to prove gender discrimination because General Motors did hire women, albeit only women who were white. So, of course, the fact that GM didn't exclude all blacks or all women should have been irrelevant in determining whether black women, a subgroup of both, had been discriminated against. Obviously, they had been. So it should have been an easy case. The court didn't see it that way. In the court's view, these black women plaintiffs weren't asking for ordinary protection from discrimination, but instead they were asking for special treatment. So to the court, if the only way a black woman could make their argument stick was through an unprecedented permission to patch together two distinct claims of discrimination, then they were asking for something extraordinary, something dangerous, and something unfair. Dangerous because it would open a Pandora's box of claims that would create a nightmare for courts and the business world, and unfair since neither black men nor white women were permitted to put two claims together in order to make their case. Now, of course, Neither black men nor white women had to put two claims together for their stories to be understandable as complaints about race and gender discrimination. 
So what was so problematic about the court's viewpoint was that it could only comprehend race discrimination in terms to what happened to African Americans who were men or sex discrimination in terms of what happened to women who were white. It could not see or it downright rejected the idea that race discrimination could be grounded in what happens to blacks who are women and that sex discrimination could be predicated on narratives of what happened to women who were black. Black women were forced to make their claims just like white women's claims or just like black men's claims just in order to be heard. And of course, they could do neither. One judge went as far as to say that black women claiming gender discrimination weren't even claiming discrimination as women at all, but only as black women, as though the particularity of their blackness made their claim something other than gender discrimination. So having been kicked off the gender bus, they were similarly indictable for trying to perpetrate a race claim over and against the experiences of black men. Now, what the court eventually told them was, go home and come back when they could tell a more convincing story. Now, the question we might ask here is, why were courts more receptive to white women and black men representing everybody, while black women couldn't represent even themselves, much less white women and black men? It is implied that the problem is that black women were just different from black men and white women. But of course, black women are no more different than white women and black men than white women and black men are different from them. It's an equivalent difference. So why then is difference here a one-way street? Black women's difference makes a difference in their ability to represent others as a class, but not in the ability of others to represent them. Why is it not the case the other way around? Well, intersectionality became my way of visualizing what the courts apparently didn't see, the combined and simultaneous effects of race discrimination and sex discrimination. So in the metaphor that we have, what amounts to a racist structure and a sexist structure in an institutional setup is one that channels racism in one way and challenges sexism in the other. So here we witness the racial stratification of jobs and the gender stratification of jobs. Black women were located where the two dynamics intersected, where the race traffic and the gender traffic collided. So this structure (laughs) of workplace discrimination was one aspect of disempowerment that intersectionality was meant to visualize. But it was not the only one. In fact, the key observation in intersectionality was to draw attention to the way that sameness and difference played out in the remedial scope of the law and in anti-racism and feminism. So let's go back to this collision here. Let's assume that the women were indemnified against such misfortunes. The ambulance, say anti-racism or say feminism, approaches the scene of the accident. Yet they are unable to sort out whether the women were injured exclusively by gender or exclusively by race. So rather than seeing the accident as an occurrence that is covered by feminism or by anti-racism, the tendency has been to just back it on up 
and return to the ready for a case that's more completely familiar as a case of gender discrimination or patriarchy or a case of race discrimination or racism. So intersectionality was a conceptual framework designed to draw attention to the need for the ambulance not to speed away from black women simply because it was impossible for them to disentangle both their gender and their race from the discriminatory event in question. Now, I wanted a framework that clearly demonstrated how not just black women, but anyone can be subject to multiple and overlapping discriminatory factors. Here you might say um, that in this instance, there were several intersectionalities going on. There was the intersectionality of the double or compounded discrimination, but there was also the way that gender and race advantage that in that context, African-American men and white women had immunized them against the full impact of the segregated workforce while at the same time erasing the concerns of black women. So what is it that this idea of intersectionality suggests for us? And in particular, what kind of baseline should we use to evaluate whether we are now in a post-intersectional moment? So has this framework in some way eliminated, addressed, or made conscious awareness of intersectionality such a common part of anti-racism and feminism as a movement that we can honestly say that we are post-racial. Now, if we are, in fact, post-racial, um, might we say that the circumstances have changed? Well, one thing that we know about what gave rise to intersectionality politically um, is the idea that when a certain group um, is dominant within a resistance discourse, usually those who are most privileged actually determine what the agendas are. They become representatives of uh, the group. They are able to dictate what kind of issues are priorities and what kind of issues are not. Their face is the representation of what the discourse is all about. So back then, when intersectionality was initially articulated, there were common representations that would suggest that this was an issue um, within anti-racism and within feminism. So here are two images that might be used to illustrate this basic idea. So the first image, um, uh, the image of race, uh, was a snapshot that was taken in, in the hours after the famous March on Washington in 1963. So all people who were advocating for racial justice marched um, and they were collectively articulating a demand for anti-racism in terms of new legislation and in terms of opening up the society and breaking down white supremacy. After the march, however, the leaders went to the White House to negotiate with the state about how and what and on what terms this would unfold. Notice in the picture who is not part of that conversation. Right? Now, the other snapshot um, comes from 20 years later. Um, this is um, abortion rights movement, a press conference um, after a major march advocating, articulating uh, the need for um, uh, abortion rights as they were framed at the time. Notice who's missing from this mm. image. Okay, now, that you might say is pre-intersectionality, 
leading to intersectionality. So the question would be, if we're post-intersectional, what might the images look like today? So um, about three weeks ago, uh, President Obama announced a new initiative called My Brother's Keeper. Um, It is framed as and articulated as an effort to address the communities that have been left behind, um, largely framed as racial communities, people of color um, who've not benefited from the recovery and who on any number um, of indices are still doing very poorly, right? Um, Notice who is not in this picture. And I ask you, is this a post-intersectional moment? Well, when some people asked that question, the response was, well, there is a White House counsel on gender. And so the ways in which women of color are still experiencing a range of disparities might be thought to be taken up at that space. (laughs) So I ask again, is this post-intersectional? Right? Um, so there are many ways in which one might look, and admittedly, this is not an empirical test of whether we are post intersectional. It is a representational artifact of the possibility that we've not advanced nearly as much as we might think we had in order to proclaim that we are truly post racial and post intersectional. So let's go a little deeper and look at some of the empirical information to ask whether or not there is more evidence than these pictures might suggest that we are truly um, post-intersectional. Now, one set um, of observations was made during the State of the Union address in which uh, President Obama um, both talked about gender and he talked about race. When he talked about gender, he acknowledged the fact um, that there still was a wage gap along gender lines, Um, that women as a whole only made 77 cents on the dollar that white men made, right? So gender was clearly indicated. Um, There were clearly going to be interventions that were designed to address the wage gap among women, comparing women to men. What wasn't mentioned Uh, was that there was a race gap within the gender gap. So while women overall made 77 cents per every white male dollar, African-American women made 65 cents for every white male dollar, and Latinas made 56 cents for every white male dollar. That wasn't necessarily marked or discussed as an intersectional problem. It wasn't acknowledged as one. On the other side, uh, the president did say something um, about race, and people were very happy um, that racial disparities that have been growing um, were actually acknowledged. Um, But they were acknowledged in terms of the economic and social and political plight um, of males in uh, communities of color. So women and girls were not marked in the conversation about race. So we know that discursively there are two different discourses going on. And in the gender discourse, race isn't necessarily marked. And in the race discourse, gender isn't marked. Feels like DeGraff and Reed to me all over again, but I could be wrong. Um, So let's look at some of the arguments that have been given for, again, this mutually exclusive approach to race and to gender. So some people make the argument um, that black women are actually doing quite well, thank you. 
Um, and the only problem um, that they really have is where they're going to find marriage partners. Now, some people um, would suggest that that in and of itself is an indication of a sort of heterosexism that circulates as a defining issue. But let us just assume for the moment um, that this represents some sensibility about the relative privilege and advantage that women who are racialized as black have over men who are racialized as black. So this cover image was this idea that black women are doing really, really well, um, and the dot, dot, dot was, and their brothers are not doing so well. So many people, when the discussion moves to, should interventions that are meant to do work in creating racial uplift be gender specific, will point to images like this to say, of course they should, because women are doing okay. Well, what actually is the evidence about how well black women are doing uh, relative uh, to everyone else? Well, there's a crisis discourse that's been going on in the U.S. for about 20 years. The crisis discourse is one that says that school is point A in a school-to-prison pipeline primarily for boys of color. There are gender-specific challenges that they have to face in classrooms um, that largely do not have men of color as teachers. They deal with gender issues with respect to female teachers. They deal with race issues uh, with respect uh, to white teachers. And this is the beginning of a process of being disciplined and being constrained and being pushed out of school and being pushed into the juvenile justice system, which is just one step removed from the criminal justice system. So the idea behind the, the argument, the idea behind the frame is, to the extent that we have a huge disparity in vulnerability to being incarcerated, the place to begin the process of reversing that is actually in the schools. Doing away with zero tolerance policies, creating the kind of predicates necessary for African American boys and Latino boys to be able to achieve and do well, create attachments to school, attachments to society, and make them upstanding citizens. All right, that's the argument. The implicit argument is none of these things are true for girls. Mm -hmm. So school is not the first stop mm -hmm. in a school-to-prison pipeline, a school-to-nowhere pipeline, a school-to-low-wage work pipeline, a school-to-social marginality pipeline. That is the assumption. But if we actually look at some of the figures, we'll see that for black girls, School is every bit as much as a beginning to school-to-nowhere pipelines as it is for African-American boys. It's just we don't tend to think about it. So let's talk about, for example, suspension rates. One of the arguments is African-American boys are disproportionately suspended as compared to everybody. And so the focus should be on the kinds of supports that keep them from getting suspended from school. Absolutely true. No argument there whatsoever. The problem is the inference that African-American girls aren't experiencing a similar disproportionality in comparison to white girls. In fact, the Department of Education recently released statistics that suggested that African-American girls were suspended more than anybody save African-American boys. Mm -hmm. So in fact, the suspension crisis is not solely a crisis dealing with boys. It's a racial crisis. 
Now, boys and girls get suspended for different things, right? And that's what's intersectional about it. So a lot of the evidence suggests that women, girls, get suspended for not acting like girls. They get suspended for having an attitude. They get suspended for talking back. They get suspended for not wearing the right kind of clothes. They get suspended for being overly aggressive. They get suspended for the same reason that black women throughout history have been seen as not normative with respect to what women are supposed to be. Right? So for both genders, race is playing a role. Right? It's just that we don't notice, we don't pay attention to the particular role that race is playing when it's intersecting with female gender. Implicitly, we pay attention to it when it intersects with maleness, but not when it intersects with women. Now, others might say, well, let's look at some of the consequences um, of suspension. So one of the arguments is when boys get suspended from school, it has a long-term effect on family formation because they're less likely to be able to get a job, less likely to engage in productive activities and behavior, more likely to be incarcerated. They still will have children, but they will not be in the position to take care of them. So again, let's create the interventions that are necessary to make sure that the likelihood that they will be able to form proper family formations is maximized by limiting the extent to which they go off on a a bad uh, route, right? As it turns out, actually, the consequences of suspension and expulsion and failure to graduate from high school are actually greater for women than they are for men. Why? Because of where women are in the wage labor force. Right? So basically, we still are living in a world where there are men's jobs and there's women's jobs. And there are white jobs and there are non-white jobs. And it turns out that the jobs that most low-income women of color face are jobs where the income is suppressed in the first place. And your ability to compete for even those is even more challenged by not having a high school diploma. So to the extent we care about the school-to-prison pipeline, we need to care about it for women as well as men, and especially given the fact that in some communities, the majority of families are born to single-wage-earning women. So if we're thinking about not only women for their own sake, and we should, but we're also thinking about women because of their role in communities, then it's obvious that women need to also be part of any kind of social programs uh, that create uplift. Lastly, on the question of income and education, there is a question of wealth. Right? So economists have moved beyond looking at just income disparity to actually consider wealth disparity. But when we look at wealth disparities, we see that there's a huge race difference and a gender difference within a race difference. Again, doesn't really sound like post-intersectionality to me. So African-American women's net wealth, their median net wealth is, I don't know if you guys can see that, uh, $100. So that means that half of African-American women have a negative net worth, negative net worth, right? Um, The median net worth for Latinas is $120. Now, for white women, the median net worth is $41,500, right? Still not a lot, but there's a huge racial difference there. And then there's a gender difference within a race difference, 
right? So the median net wealth for African-American men is nearly $8,000. Again, the point being that when it comes to wealth, and wealth is actually more important than income. Wealth determines where you live, what, what kind of education you're able to get for your children, what kind of food you have access to, um, what kind of protection you have. Uh, in old age or in crises. It is that cushion, that knapsack, that keeps you safe, keeps you comfortable. You can flow with the punches, right? When you don't have wealth, you're completely dependent on your income. And as we know, income can come and go. So when we look at wealth, when we look at education, when we look at certain outcomes, it's sort of hard to, to say that um, uh, we're post-racial in that regard. So, so let's look at another issue. People say mass incarceration. Um, men are incarcerated much more than women. That's the case across the board. But here's the thing that people hadn't been talking about. Those groups that were experiencing the highest growth rate incarceration were women. And the group within women that were experiencing the highest growth in incarceration were black women. Why? Partly because of the war on drugs. Partly because women were positioned in some of the drug enterprises in ways that women typically are. As helpmates, as people who don't really know a whole lot of information, but they're willing to hold the money. They're willing to pass on a message. They're willing to say that they don't know where their boyfriend, son, brother, husband might be. And it turns out that they can then be prosecuted under conspiracy for the full weight of all of the enterprise that their husband's brother's sons were engaged in. So countless numbers of women are serving 20, 25, 30-year terms because of their association with someone who was in, involved in the drug trade. But, but, but it gets a little more difficult than that because a lot of people are able to have a downward departure. They're able to negotiate a, a lower sentence if they're willing to turn somebody in in their drug enterprise. Well, guess who they tended to turn in in their drug enterprises? The wives, the mothers, the daughters, the sisters. And the women tended not to do it, both because of uh, love, because of fear, because they didn't know anything. Right? So this is a classic intersectional problem that doesn't really get addressed. We could go on and talk about the fact that the majority of women who are incarcerated, 68 to 80 percent by some studies, have a history of domestic violence and other forms of abuse which is not addressed by the domestic violence movement. We could go on and say that the majority of women who are incarcerated are mothers of minor children. They're more likely to lose custody of their children than men because men generally are not the sole custodial parent of the child when women often are. So the whole mass incarceration question is gendered in ways that don't often reflect the intersectional dimension um, of how women uh, are incarcerated. Um, the argument that men are incarcerated more often is absolutely true. The argument that the race disparity is greater for men than in women is not true. So African-American women are three times more likely to be um, incarcerated than white women. Latinas are one and a half times more likely to be incarcerated than white women. Um, it is a ratio that is about the same as the ratio um, of men of color to white men. And then the biggest problem is what's happening to girls. So in California, we recently did a study to look at what the rates of juvenile incarceration uh, were. African-American girls um, make up uh, less than 8% of the entire population, but they are 70-plus percent 
of the girls that are held uh, in detention centers in some regions in California. So there's something going on with girls as well as with boys. And in fact, what may be going on with girls um, is actually more disparate uh, within their gender categories than what's going on uh, with boys. Um, So where are our sympathies? Where do they lie um, in addressing some of these issues? Often the argument is, well, um, men and boys are are more likely to uh, be uh, victims of of violent crime. And many of you, I'm sure everybody knows um, about what happened to Trayvon Martin. And I'm sure many of you know that one of the reasons behind this effort to focus uh, a lot of our attention uh, on uh, protecting and uplifting uh, men and boys of color comes from the concern about the victimization of Trayvon Martin. How many of you have heard of any of these women? A few of you, which is good. I'm really glad to to hear that. Um, About six months ago, I think fewer people will have heard of these women. Marissa Alexander, um, a woman who uh, was an abuse victim, a woman who was in fear of her life, a woman who had been hospitalized many times by her husband, uh, trapped in a bathroom. Um, He was trying to break in. She was in fear of her life. She shot a warning shot over his head. Under traditional stand-your-ground laws, this is supposed to be what you're allowed to do, right? She is supposed to be allowed to shoot and kill. That's at least what Zimmerman got off for, and he wasn't in his own bathroom, right? Um, but she has, been con- she has been accused and was initially convicted uh, of uh, a felonious use of a firearm and was initially uh, sentenced to 20 years. She's now looking at 30 to 60 years in a retrial by the same person who unsuccessfully tried George Zimmerman. There is not a big outcry about this in the United States. There are not marches happening in 100 uh, cities uh, across uh, the country, and we have to ask again why this might be so. Uh, Isla Nettles, a trans woman who was um, uh, killed in uh, Manhattan, Um, in response to uh, a homophobic slur to which uh, a fight broke out. She was stabbed many times. There were many uh, witnesses. So far, no one has been arrested. If this had happened, say, in Mississippi, um, and the assailants were white men, um, we would probably be marching about it. She's a trans woman. She's African-American. It happened in Harlem. It was interracial. We're not really paying any attention to this. The last person, Renisha McBride, Um, a woman who had a car uh, malfunction at 2 o'clock in the morning. She um, went door to door knocking for help. She knocked on one door. Um, A white man saw her, said he was in fear of his life, shot her through the screen door in the face with a shotgun. It is a Trayvon Martin kind of case. We're not marching about that either. So I ask again, are we post-racial? Is it even remotely possible Uh, that we are. So um, let me get to uh, the end of this and uh, actually debate with you and talk to you about whether you think we're post-racial. One cannot conclude this kind of conversation without talking about politics. And um, the one political moment that everyone's been asking about was the 2008 election when everybody was in a roar about whether it was going to be a woman first or whether it was going to be African-American first. If you were a feminist, what were you supposed to do? Right? I had one white feminist friend tell me that, well, you know, I just told my daughter to look in the mirror and vote for who looks like you. I said, so what should I do? (laughs) 
And in fact, this was a tremendously problematic moment um, for uh, the feminist movement. People just didn't know how to have this conversation. Do you mobilize feminism for uh, Senator Clinton? Do you mobilize anti-racism for uh, uh, Senator uh, Barack Obama? It was a huge fight. And one moment in the fight really stands out um, as a way in which feminism and black women in particular entered into the debate. Some of you might have seen this. It was an op-ed that was written um, by uh, Gloria Steinem, who just had her 80th birthday yesterday, and we all celebrated that. Um, But her op-ed was called, um, Women Are Never the First. And it was basically an argument to say um, that Barack Obama as a man um, had advantages over Senator Clinton, even though he was a black man, uh, because African-American men have always gotten things before white women have, right? So the vote was a particular sort issue in American history in which it is absolutely true that African-American men got the vote over women of any race. Um, There are other ways in which um, she made this argument. The thing that was particularly compelling, though, and problematic, was she made up a character. She called her Akala Obama. This is Akala Obama. And she said, suppose that uh, Barack were, his name was Akala, and rather than uh, Barack being a he, uh, he was a she. Do we think that she would even have a remote chance of being taken seriously without having had a profile, without having had a history, without having been in the White House, without having been attached to a powerful man. Do we think in a million years that Achilo Obama would have a chance in Hades um, of actually winning the nomination? Now, the argument was not meant to say that she should have had a chance. Right? So she was brought onto the stage um, to make an argument. And once she made the argument to sh- suggest that Hillary was actually being discriminated against as a woman, off the stage she went. So it's a particular problematic moment in the way that women of color sometimes show up in being the masses that support Um, uh, gender-based analyses, but we don't necessarily take them seriously. So, in American politics, one of the arguments now um, is that women's voices and votes were um, all in the mix, right? So it was women that gave uh, President Obama the victory, and it's women whose uh, votes are at the core of the Democratic Party, and it's women who can go to the White House now um, and expect to be repaid for their loyalty. That was the argument. Now, here's just a breakdown of how women voted in the last election. If you look very closely, you'll see it wasn't women as a whole that elected uh, President Obama. It was women of color who elected President Obama. The majority of white women voters did not vote for President Obama. What made the women's vote disproportionately pro-Obama was the racial gap within the women's vote. African-American women were the most loyal women out there. Look at this, 96%, (laughs) golly, (laughs) voted for, I mean, it was more than African-American men, for goodness sake, uh, voting for President Obama. So this gender gap is an intersectional gap. This gender gap um, is actually a race gap. But if we look at the leadership of the feminist movement, Right? The grass tops don't look like the grass roots. 
<laughs> By any stretch of the imagination. Okay. So um, this takes me um, basically um, uh, to my to my. I'm going to conclude here. We we could talk a little bit um, about the media. Uh, I think it's important to acknowledge that young women are taking up these issues in ways that we couldn't have imagined um, 10, uh, 15 years ago. Um, I'm constantly learning about what young women are thinking. Um, and now this takes us to the question um, of what kind of allies uh, we uh, need to be to one another. So I want to end um, basically with. A story that, that I, I, I like to tell. Um, basically, you know, it's a story that allows me to do penance for something that I did that I shouldn't have done. Um, when I was in law school, um, I was a part of a, a small study group. Um, it was myself and, and two other African American men. And um, one of our um, members of this group was the first African-American member of a very exclusive drinking club. And by exclusive, I mean former presidents had been part of this club. Um, The the captains of industry were part of this club. If you go into uh, their game room, uh, you'll see the the heads of safari hunts that they were able to bring back. Antelope here, elephant tusk there. It's real manly, manly, macho kind of uh, stuff going on there. Uh, And so as a new black member of the club, he wanted to entertain the first African-American guest in the club. So my other male friend and I had a conversation like, do we really want to do this? I don't know. Well, maybe we should go. We need to represent. Well, let's have a pact with each other. Let's be in coalition here. There's only so much of this stuff that we're going to take. So we had an agreement. We're not going to take no stuff. We're not going to take no stuff. We got each other. We got each other. Got it. Got it. Good. Okay. Um, so we go uh, to the club. Um, of course, it's one of those big door knockers. Couldn't be just a basic you know, doorbell. Bam, bam, bam. Um, and our friend opens the door and steps out real quickly and shuts the door behind him. Now, we look at each other and go, uh-oh, this is the kind of stuff we're talking about. <laughs> so we assume the position. <laughs> which is, okay, what, what, what? You know, what's the issue? Um, and our, our, our friend said, oh, no, no, it's okay, it's okay. It, it's not what you think. It's not what you think. Um, it's just, mm, I forgot to tell you that uh, Kim can't come through the front door. Women have to go around to the back door. Now, I figure we have a path, right? And it applies to this too, right? We said, ain't going to take no stuff. This is stuff as far as I'm concerned. So he's supposed to stand with me like, heck no, we're not doing that. He was like, okay, cool. I went, right through the front door, right? So, so that was a coalition with a rider, yeah. right? It was a coalition with, you know, we got each other's back as long as we're experiencing the same kind of obstacle. But the moment the obstacle is more refined, more different, more focused on something that is a disability that you have, then the rider is gone. It's time for me to walk through the door. So I use this a lot, first of all, because I have to say that at that moment, the appeal to not act up, um, not embarrass us, keep your voice down, don't cause a scene, was heavy for me. 
really, really heavy for me. So I sludged around to the back door, and I was on swole the whole night. I was really upset about it and committed myself at that point never to take that path again, right? So my own notion uh, of why this work is important um, was situated in that very painful moment in which I was not my own advocate. I was not my own ally, right? So the question this raises um, is what kind of ally we think we should be to each other. So, you know, what kind of ally can we be? Are we the uh, sort of the Betty Davis ally, right? If, if it's not my way, it's no way, right? If, if we're not going to uh, march along uh, the way I need to uh, march, uh, I'm not going to be an ally. Um, are you the kind of ally um, that basically argued uh, that the Congolese soldiers protect the gorillas but forgot to mention the women, mm. right? Is that the kind of ally you are? Um, are you an ally um, whose articulation and demand depends? It depends on who's watching, right? So you're all in the coalition as long as somebody is, um, no one's watching. But when you get into the boardroom, when you get into the meeting room, when it's really a cost, then you're suddenly silent, right? What kind of ally are you? Are you the kind of ally um, that when it really, really matters, right, are you there for the other who is not as empowered as you? Um, Are you basically an an ally that marches as long as your issues are being addressed um, and not others? So these are some of the questions that I think we have to confront in deciding, number one, are we post-intersectional? I haven't seen the evidence of it, Right? I think, if anything, we're pre-intersectional. Right? And these are the kind of questions we have to answer if we want to seriously be in alliance with one another. It's not a matter of explain yourself to me in language that I can understand from my experience. It's a matter of help me understand the full totality of the way patriarchy works, not just in my life but in your life. Let me understand the full totality of the way anti-racism works, not just in my life but also in your life. So my hope, my aspiration, is that we have perhaps a neo-intersectionality, a post-post-intersectionality, an erasure of the post-intersectionality. And through this kind of understanding of what coalition requires, we're able to build more solid coalitions that reach across difference and reach across the globe. Thank you very much. So I just whispered to Kim, wow. Note to self, don't go on a panel after Kim. Um, Wasn't that amazing? Look, we don't have too much time. We have 25 minutes. So rather than me spending time myself commenting, except to say it was fantastic and there's so much to think and talk about, I want to take a couple of rounds of questions at least before we run out of time. Kim, is that okay if I do three at a time? Yes, I'd love that. Okay. So Hans, you can go first because I've seen you first. I'm going to point, I don't know names. Could you quickly say who you are and ask your question as briefly as you can so that we can get through as many as possible? 
Thanks. Hi, thank you for your great lecture. It's completely inspiring to us all. Uh, my name is Mahatsa Najumi. Um, I'm a student and a writer for The Feminist Wire. Mm. I wanted to ask you, um, as you said, unfortunately, we've seen a growth in the incarceration of African-American -Amer women especially. And you have abhorrent figures like Bill O'Reilly, for example, who will attribute that to the degradation of the African-American household. Yes. Um, but we, as we know, there are a myriad of factors that contribute to, to this growth, and namely socioeconomic factors that aren't really discussed. What recourse do you think should be taken in order to change the um, attitudes against African-American women um, and the dispositional biases that we see imposed onto them? Thank you so much. Thank you. Anybody else? Please. Yeah, hi. Um, Just wait for the mic. Oh. Thank you. Um, hi, Professor uh, from Columbia. My name's Andrea, and I'm an alumni here, and I come and cause a bit of trouble every now and then. I'm also from Occupy London, and um, I was very, very interested in your data about the women and the drug war, because that's what I've been resisting for 25 years of my life as an ex-injection drug user and widow to the AIDS crisis of this country, as it happens. Um, and what I want to just say, and I don't want anybody to throw anything at me, is that with women being the way we are generally, my own experiences, many, many years in a resistant drug war all over the world, actually, is that, you know, basically, if you let a human being rough ride you and you know use you and you know we need to be needed and all that female stuff i'm sorry you know please nobody hit me okay um then it just carries on and on and on and on and this is the human condition and i think as the economics get worse and worse and worse and the inequality gets worse and worse and worse as a human race we get more and more aggressive apart from those of us who actually want to make a difference so that's just a comment and thank you for being here because you're obviously a star <laughs> thank you uh, we'll stay upstairs for the last question at the lady at the back thank you Hello, um, my name is Swana and I'm the Women's Officer at the University of London Union. I'm also the next National Union of Students Women's Officer, um, which is quite exciting, and you are my hero. Um, <laughs> um, so um, my work is on liberation groups in um, universities, and um, generally they are split into four, so women's, um, politically black, um, LGBT and disabled students. Um, what I recognise all, all over London and all, all over the country is um, one dominant group would like represent everybody in that group and they wouldn't intersect or work with each other. So how do you think I could work with um, or we could work with diversifying diversify those groups and making it more intersectional so we can work together? Okay, great. So some, some great questions to get us started. So I'm just going to continue um, the, a little bit of my rant on the O'Reilly question um, because, you know, I, I think there, there's, there's a lot here. Um, so uh, that picture that I showed you of, of the press conference that um, announced my brother's keeper, um, what I didn't show was, in fact, that O'Reilly was there. Um, along with um, uh, former Mayor Bloomberg. Why is this significant? 
Um, former Mayor Bloomberg, um, as some of you might know, ran the most aggressive racialized stop and frisk program in the country. Um, in some communities uh, in New York City, over 85 percent of young men of color had been stopped and frisked by this policy. Uh, as a consequence uh, of, of uh, Evidence to suggest that the police department intended uh, to engage in a racialized process of stop and frisk. A district court, and this doesn't happen a lot anymore, um, found that the police department had engaged in intentional discrimination um, against African Americans, Latinos. Again, this does not happen very much anymore. Instead of conceding that his policy unconstitutionally deprived people of their equal protection of the law, um, Mayor Bloomberg went on a tear basically telling New Yorkers that their safety was at risk if they were not allowed to use this highly problematic policing tool. So on one hand, this is, this is a person who is using race and gender stereotypes to justify a particular kind of discriminatory burden largely on African-American and Latino youth, men in particular. On the other hand, some of you may know, um, uh, Mayor uh, Bloomberg is a very wealthy man, so he's able to write checks for things that he cares about. One of the things that he wrote a check for um, was a black and brown male youth development program, right? <laughs> so on one hand, he's, he's frisking and arresting them. On the other hand, he's creating programs which he calls are necessary for black and brown boys to develop the attachments they need to society, to the world of work, to, um, and, and make them feel that they are valued in society. So now, how is it possible, on one hand, that one of the most significant things that makes young men feel like they're not valued is being surveilled in police every time they walk outside? Mm. And on the other hand, to be able to say, okay, well, we want to give money um, in order to create the kind of behaviors we want. So we've got a carrot and a stick thing going on here, right? We're going to punish on one hand, and we're going to cajole on the other hand. One of the things that should be obvious about this is that this is not part of an anti-racist social justice framework. Right. This is part of a pathology framework. This is part of an idea that the problem is a cultural, individual, and maybe even a deeper kind of deficit that some members of our population are suffering from. And so we're going to have a two-sided strategy in order to address it. This is part of the reason why O'Reilly was there. Right? So O'Reilly's argument has been that, that, that there aren't really any institutional or structural reasons why there's so much inequality. It's because families haven't formed. It's because men haven't been appropriately uh, shaped into men. It's because these single-headed households um, are, are matriarchal uh, um, uh, spaces that, that don't do a good job of raising American citizens. So he can come to this. Al Sharpton can come to this, and they can agree, even though they have completely different political agendas and rhetorics, they can agree that this kind of approach is acceptable and should be advanced. The folks not at that table are feminists, mm -hmm. right? This is not a space 
um, where they're going to push back on O'Reilly's argument that the problem is um, the family that that's uh, torn apart. They're not going to push back on on the argument that you know the reason why so many women are incarcerated is because they are in dysfunctional relationships uh, with men. They're not going to push back on what we tend to understand is the 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 real ongoing issues that affect uh, uh, disembodied and disenfranchised people of color. So our strategy and our challenge is, A, how to, in, how to elevate and, and maintain the rare focus on communities of color that are not doing well, but how to integrate that not with a personal, cultural, family pathology frame, but with a structural, institutional frame that acknowledges that we live in a society in which single women of color are generally disadvantaged in the workforce, disadvantaged in the culture, and if you really want to uplift the community, you have to include them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, on the question of, of um, the, the, the drugs, um, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, a cultural anthropologist. I'm not, um, you know, any of the disciplines that might be able to opine with any kind of expertise on what's actually happening. What I can say is that I see the over incarceration of women uh, of color and the communities at large as a moment of what I call intersectional failure. Um, And by that I mean the way that the domestic violence movement um, first of all, has failed to look at the pathway from violence to incarceration. Right? So it hasn't really been at the center of many of the things that advocates talk about. And at the same time, the movement has become increasingly professionalized and has relied on criminal justice interventions as opposed to other kinds of interventions that don't rely on the state. So as a consequence, one of the big fights that happened in the 80s and the 90s between women of color um, and and their white allies in domestic violence movements was the imposition of mandatory arrest policy. So one argument was we need to make sure that every time the police go somewhere and they see that there's been violence that someone gets arrested. Women of color said that's just not a good idea. Because first of all, it's going to suppress the willingness of women of color to call. But secondly, they're more likely to be seen as engaging in mutual combat. So the reality might be that women of color are going to be over-arrested. Ten years later, it turns out that's exactly what happened. Women of color are several times more likely to be arrested in a domestic violence scene than white women are. And additionally, when men are arrested, their arrest is associated with higher levels of ultimate fatalities right? because of the arrest than we, we don't have a mandatory arrest policy. So one thing I know is that at least the political framing of this question, the things that people are asking for, has in fact undermined the support for kinds of interventions that prevent incarceration of women and also has increased the risk um, that women of color face of ultimate um, uh, homicide um, as a consequence of mandatory arrest. Last question about how to, how to build um, intersectional leadership. So I have no magic on, on that one. Um, I struggle with it myself. I mean, a lot of this work came out of being in movements, being in struggles, um, uh, doing a lot of work with other sisters, um, and then when, when, when the media comes, when the spokespersons go to negotiate, suddenly we're not part of it. 
Um, and the same um, has happened uh, within uh, feminist formations. I think that you know the the, the it, it's part of the consciousness raising struggle that has to go on and how the actual agenda is being shaped. And I've come to believe that when we shape agendas from our intersectional vantage point, we end up working with people who are on that particular agenda rather than us trying to go into organizations and cajole and persuade and fight and battle um, with them to to place the agendas um, in in ways that respond uh, to our needs. It's not always the perfect uh, solution because there are existing organizations that have a lot of resources, um, discursive resources, political capital, and if we don't participate in those organizations, we get less um, than if, if um, and we do and we don't get quite as much. So um, I think um, one of the things I'm interested in is how young women are managing uh, these questions within some of the formations that at least from the internet look to me that they have discourses that are far more inclusive um, than some of us old girls were used to. <laughs> Thank you, Kim. We've got, I think we'll take one more round of questions and let's come downstairs. Aisha, and then yourself, and the lady over there. If we go that way. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Crenshaw, it's a real honor to listen to you twice in one week. I could just listen to you every day. Um, <laughs> it's really fantastic. Uh, a real inspiration. Um, my, it's, a, it's just a probe, really. Um, you said in your paper that when we look at the feminist movement, the women at the grass tops do not look like the women at the grassroots. Yeah. I just wanted to probe you a little bit more in relation to that because I think you've captured something that's really, really important for those of us you know, who, who would like to know what, what more could be done so that more of the grassroots can be at the grass tops. Thank you. Thanks, Aisha. And then lady here. Hi there. Um, my name is Manish Tam from... Um, Oxford um, Black Women's Group. Um, so thank you very much for the lecture. That was very, um, very good and very interesting. And I've had, um, having been involved in, in, uh, in politics and in anti-racism and feminism, um, in, it's interesting because we, you know, discussing and talking with people, um, with feminists, um, especially feminist men, on, inter- on the term intersectionality and, f- and white women on, inter- on the term intersectionality and them wanting to be allies, um, allies to, um, to the struggle. It's been quite interesting because um, a lot of what, um, what I've seen and what I've sort of uh, witnessed is people buying into the term of intersectionality, buying into the fact that it's, it's, it's something that needs to be incorporated, it's something that needs to be taken up and, um, and worked on, but too often using it as a term that is a bit of a tick box in terms of their credibility in activism and their credibility in left-wing um, circles and the hierarchy of it. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, I'd like to hear from you whether you've had that experience coming, um, you've had that, that experience in terms of your work um, in academia and um, in social movements in itself, and how do you counter that? Thank, Thank you. you. And one last question here. Hello. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Professor Crenshaw, for your lucid um, 
reiteration of the reconfiguration of the many Anna Julia moments in, in, in your talk. Um, and I'm wondering, um, there's been a kind of de uh, devitalization of uh, struggles, resistance in the black uh, African-American community also in this country. And I'm wondering to what extent do you think it's to do with the seeing the world from the vantage point of the black middle classes who have made it? Mm -hmm. and therefore that they represent the post-racial moments. Mm -hmm. Great. Great. The last three questions. Okay, let me see. So, grass tops, grassroots. So, it's it's a challenge similar to uh, the question that was asked here. How do we how do we create more intersectional leadership? So, you know, first I have to say, guys, that that, that if I knew that, you know, I'd have a huge foundation, and you know, I, I'd I'd be able to you know speak to this, and and you know, I'd be really happy that I had an answer to it because, in, in fact. You know, I think there are uh, difficult questions because we're basically asking, how do we deal and interrogate power? You know, because that's basically what it is to to be able to, you know, be in a, a pyramid kind of scheme where, you know, most of the people that are, are providing the political win for your sales um, look different from you and are experiencing life differently from, from you. And you are not forced to articulate the full range of those experiences when you demand accountability, when you demand access to power, when you represent women. Um, that's basically, I think, been the, the main thing that black feminists and uh, women of color feminists over the last century have, have actually been trying to raise, and, and we haven't consistently gotten a sense for which button actually to push um, that actually changes it. The, the only thing um, that I think is important is to call it out. Um, to name it. And that actually is a controversial thing. I've, I'm asked all the time, well, isn't that divisive? Mm. And I was like, yeah, you know, when, when the civil rights marchers went to the South, uh, a lot of people there said that was divisive too. Um, yeah, you know, when, when, when your cohesion depends on disempowerment, challenging that disempowerment is going to be divisive for a moment or two. Um, the real question is how those in power respond to the critique. That is where the moment, I think, of divisiveness comes. If one acknowledges that we all have um, our power, we all have relative to whatever the context is, various privileges, and it is our um, it is expected that we at least listen to and engage in the critiques, then the opportunities for the critique to be divisive, I think, are uh, minimized and the opportunities for more effective and I think, quite frankly, more powerful transformations come about. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm very hopeful that learning to you know, confront the suppressive, let's not air our dirty laundry, um, will give way to uh, loving critique, but uh, trenchant and insistent transformative practices at the top. Um, on the tick box, have I experienced it? Well, so the way I experience it is when people get mad about the tick box, they get mad at people who write intersectionality. 
Um, so I get a lot of misses from people who are really mad about the way some people have used intersectionality. Um, and, uh, and I understand, you know, that anger. What I want people to understand is the way people use intersectionality um, doesn't really tell you anything about intersectionality. It just basically tells you about how people interpret it, what they mobilize it for, um, whether or not they feel accountable to communities who want to use intersectionality in a, mo- in a more robust way. Um, I also have to say that I think that's not, um, a, you know, exclusively a problem of intersectionality. I mean, in in the United States, for example, um, all uh, employers say uh, we are an equal opportunity employer, whether they have any people of color or not. They will say we are an equal opportunity employer. Now, some people get mad about that because they say, well, all you have to do is say you're an equal opportunity employer. You don't have to do anything, right? Now, people know that there is a difference between articulating something and actually doing it. But I rarely see people say that we repudiate equal opportunity because of the way that it's used sometimes to cover uh, for people's failure to really do something. What they do instead is try to make equal opportunity more robust, you know, try to make it mean something that's actually substantive and material rather than just a rhetorical gesture to say, oh, I'm, I'm in the cool club. So I would suggest the same thing for us. Yeah. Um, the last question about the uh, depolitization of racial justice. I think there are many dimensions to it, and I clearly think that one dimension is the elevation, um, not just of the, of the middle class, but let's be honest, we now have a black family in the White House. Um, so when you've risen to the top of the political pinnacle, Uh, become perhaps the most powerful person in the world, um, and people interpret racial barriers based on the highest of us as opposed to the lowest of us, that does have an effect of suppressing ongoing efforts to organize around ongoing barriers. I mean, when, when, when the president was elected, there were some people on day two that said, okay, no more excuses. <laughs> As though, you know, the top barrier eliminated all of the others. Well, the day President Obama was sworn in, we lost the only black person that we had in the Senate. So, <laughs> so <laughs> you know, so, so I, I think you've put your finger on a problem. I think the other problem, quite honestly, is that there is a certain thing called black fatigue. You know, people are tired of the issue. It has not gone away, right? It's part of the, the natural backdrop. So, so now there's the argument that, look, you know, if someone like Obama can dance on water, so can you. So dancing on water becomes the new platform that everybody is supposed to, to deal with. You know, the, the flower that can grow through concrete shows that all flowers can grow through concrete. And if you haven't, then that's your problem. So we've got to figure out, and I think with the end of the presidency, there's going to be a moment of uh, rethinking about what this post-racialism thing has been. Right. Right. Thank you.
So I was going to give you a chance to do that in a moment. But you may have jumped, jumped somebody there. Um, listen, I just wanted a quick word to say why uh, we were here hosting Kimberley tonight. I'm from the Institute of Public Affairs here, and we're interested in the connections between scholarship and impact in the public sphere. And we have a, a piece of work that we're just starting now on women in public life, looking at who has authentic and credible voice in the public space. So we were really excited that you were coming in to be able to host you tonight, Kimberly. So that's been absolutely fantastic. I'm just going to do a little rethinking myself in terms of what, when I worked particularly in race equality in the 80s um, in London, we used to talk about what you called, uh, the, what you talked about in the GM case, we, called, we used to say that all the blacks were men and all the, all the women were white. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it still seems to be pretty much at the core of what we're, of what we're struggling with. Um, but instead of, uh, what did you call it, neo-intersectionality, I think I might call it the GM age, thanks to your case, work, your case tonight. But um, if you do want to say thank you again to Kimberly, I'm sure that would be welcome. Let us leave the room before you do, because we've got to get out and do something. But Oh, and, and one last thing for you young folks who do Twitter, um, I'm trying to get with it. <laughs> My name is Sandy Locks. Why? Sandy Locks. Um, S-A-N-D-Y-L-O-C-K-S. So whatever you do, if you're supposed to tweet me, friend me, whatever, help me get with it. Okay. Thank you, Kimberly. (laughs) 